I was unable to find the actual number, but the list that I saw was in the thousands, right? There are so many stories out there about time travel. And I think that makes sense because time travel is something that just arrests our curiosities. I mean, what would it be like to, to live in a world different than our own, in a different time? Many of us would love to be able to go back and experience some of these amazing events that have taken place in our history. So, because we can't do that ourselves, we love to watch movies where we can vicariously identify with it and, and experience it. H.G. Wells to uh, the Avenger Marvel Universe to the Back to the Future movies. All sorts of stories are out there about time travel. There's dramas and there's thrillers. There's children's stories. There's poetry. There's romance. All involving time travel. Now, There are many reasons why we would love to travel back in time and many ways that we could enjoy thinking about it or reading these stories or watching these movies. But there's also a particular reason that this idea of time travel is so captivating. And this reason is actually a fairly unsettling reason. We often would love to be able to time travel because we are haunted by the idea of if only. If only something were different in the past, my present reality might be better, right? This idea of if only torments our thoughts and our emotions. If only I would have kept my mouth shut. If only I would have invested sooner. If only I would have seen the signs. If only my loved one would have left two minutes later. If only I could have stopped that abuse and that pain. From the youngest to the oldest of us here this morning, this phrase, this mantra, if only, is one that has and will continue to be a maxim in our lives. We often think through these lens of if only. This is a deeply seated way of processing our pasts. The if-only paradigm of our lives is so arresting because it reveals something from the past that we can see now with perfect clarity, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. We look back and we see these events from our past, and if only that was different, my current reality would be better. I wouldn't be suffering. I wouldn't have this pain. I wouldn't have this misery. Yet, it is, impo- it is impossible to go back and to fix that. We look, we look at our past through a window, and this window is unforgiving. It doesn't budge. It doesn't allow us to enter back into it. All we can do is look and see and ask the question, if only, if only things were different. Time is cruel in this way. It allows us to look to the past, but it doesn't allow us to change anything. We look through the window of time and we lament the things that have taken place with the phrase, if only. These nagging thoughts of if only has been haunting humanity from the beginning of time. Could you imagine the if only conversations Adam and Eve had? They leave the garden and they look back through that window of time and they see themselves Next to the tree, the serpent comes in, 
if only. If only we would have listened. If only we would have obeyed. If only we would have done what we knew in our hearts was right. If only I would have killed that snake when it came in. And the fruit didn't even taste that good. (laughs) Or Samson, right? He looks through that window of history, looks to the past, says, if only I would have realized Delilah's motivations. I would have my eyes right now. (laughs) Or you think about the story of Jephthah and Judges. He looks back and says, if only I had not made that rash vow. If only. Here in John chapter 11, Martha is likewise tortured with this thought. If only Jesus would have been here. If only Jesus would have been here. When we left the story of Lazarus last week, Jesus had received news that his good friend Lazarus was sick. Jesus received this message from Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. They sent a message to him, and this message was short and to the point. He received this message in chapter 11, verse 3, and it simply was this. Lord, he whom you love is ill. He whom you love is ill. The sisters don't demand that Jesus come and be with them. They don't ask him to heal. They only let him know. Lazarus is sick. And no doubt, trusting that Jesus would, as always, do the right thing. And from Martha's perspective, Lazarus' sister, that would mean that Jesus be responsible with the information that he was given and punctual in his work. You see, Martha was a practical, she was a proactive, and an outspoken woman. She was a type of woman who would become anxious and troubled if plans did not go according to purpose, right? If if her plans began to break down, that would put her into a state of distress. If responsibilities were dropped or if her schedule was not kept, things would become disorienting for her. I'm sure some of you can identify with that. (laughs) If our schedules go sideways... If it doesn't happen the way that we think it should, things go wrong. So no doubt, when Jesus received her message, she fully expected Jesus to do the right thing, the efficient thing, the logical thing, and to come right away to help her brother. Time was of the essence, and Martha, more than anyone, knew this to be true. However, when Jesus receives the message... He does not follow the path that Martha thinks he ought to follow. He does not rush to Martha's side to comfort her and Mary and to heal Lazarus. Though she thought he should have. He did not hurry. He did not keep her schedule. But rather, he took his time. He receives the message, your friend whom you love, he's ill. And we see Jesus receiving it saying, okay. And because he received this message, he stayed for another two days where he was. Look at verse 6. John eleven six. 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in that place where he was. He heard it, and he decided not to move. He decided not to act. Instead, he stayed put. I could just imagine Martha in Bethany, trying to nurse her brother back to health, looking at her watch and looking out the window saying, where is he? 
The messengers have already come back. I know he got the message, but Jesus isn't here. Where is he? Perhaps Martha is regretting not asking Jesus directly to come and heal her brother as soon as possible. Maybe she is thinking, why did I just tell him that Lazarus is sick? Why didn't I ask him, I need you here now? Perhaps she thought there was some ambiguity with the messengers who brought this message to Jesus. Martha is struggling. And there is no doubt that Martha is a woman of faith. But what's going on in her life right now is causing her great worry as her brother's life is slipping away. Anxiety was gripping her heart and mind as Lazarus continues to get worse. Jesus is still not here. Grief and worry welling up inside of her. And yet Jesus is nowhere to be found. And then the worst happens. Lazarus breathes his last and dies. And Jesus is still not there. Martha did everything that she could. She prayed for him. She sent a message to Jesus. She tried to nurse Lazarus back to health herself. But now her worst fear has become a reality. Her brother is dead. And I can only imagine that her confidence in Jesus is greatly shook. So, when Jesus does arrive to Bethany, the drama's over. Lazarus is dead. There's no more hope. In fact, he comes four days later. Look at verse, or four days after Lazarus was in the tomb. Look at verse 17. It says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. For four days, he's been laying there. Jesus was four days too late. There was no longer any anticipation that Jesus is going to come and heal, do a miracle. Mary, is no, Mary and Martha are no longer looking out the window, wondering if he's going to arrive. There is no hope to hang on to that Jesus might show up at the very last moment, like God so often does, in order to heal. Jesus was too late, and Lazarus was dead. The only thing left to do at this point was to mourn and move on. He was completely gone. In fact, this idea that, he, or the, the, the fact that he was four days in the tomb is interesting because there was a thought that was taught among the Jewish rabbis, and it was actually common tradition for the Jewish folks during Jesus' day, that when somebody dies, the soul of that person hovers for three days around the body. They have this idea that maybe within the first three days, there is a possibility that the soul and the body will come back together and there will be a resuscitation or a resurrection. But when the soul looks at the body on the fourth day and the face begins to show the signs of death, the soul leaves. This is not biblical truth, but this is tradition of the day. So when Jesus comes back and it's four days later, there is no hope in the minds of the people. Lazarus is as dead as he ever could be. <laughs> Death has grabbed hold of Lazarus and there is no longer something to hold on to that might give some optimistic thoughts about Lazarus coming back to life. But rather at this time, all there's left to do is to mourn and grieve and move on. 
when Jesus arrives in Bethany, that's what he experiences. Mourning, sorrow, and grief. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. John gives us a little information, a little context to this story. It says that Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, when Jesus and his disciples do arrive in Bethany, John tells us that it's not just their friends that they know, Mary and Martha and and family, but rather a bunch of Jews from Jerusalem have also come up to Bethany in order to console Mary and Martha, to mourn with them. So when Jesus and his disciples walk in, there would be a natural nervousness, particularly among the disciples, because they remember that Jesus is a wanted man in Jerusalem. He was just there last week, and they had stones in their hands wanting to kill him. In fact, when Jesus suggested that they go back to Bethany, if you remember, the disciples said, no, 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 if we go back there, the Jews will kill you. We can't go back. Jesus waits a couple days, and then he goes. So now they come to Bethany, and the disciples are seeing some of the faces in the crowd, some of those same faces they saw in Jerusalem a couple weeks ago when they wanted to kill Jesus, right? The, the anxiety within the disciples' lives are most certainly heightened, right? There's a sense of um, watchfulness. I could imagine Peter keeping his hand on his sword just in case something goes sideways and he wants to cut somebody's ear off or something, I could imagine that they would see every sideways glance. They would notice all of the whispers, and they would see the people kind of scurry as soon as Jesus comes to town. In fact, that's what happens. News travels very quickly. Before Jesus even comes into Bethany, news has already reached Mary and Martha that Jesus is coming. They've already heard. Look at verse 20. It says, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Notice the difference here between these two sisters. Martha has a bone to pick. (laughs) She's proactive. She's outspoken. She's practical. And she has something to say to Jesus. So she gets up and she runs out to meet him. Mary, not so much. She's grieving in a different way. She stays inside. We'll look at Mary next week. But Martha runs out to meet Jesus. She approaches him, no doubt, pale, grieving, weary, and disheveled. The weight of her troubled heart resting on her shoulders like a heavy chain. And she comes to Jesus and she says this, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. If only you were here, my brother would still be alive. If only you would have come sooner. If only you cared enough. If only you would have listened. If only you would have been here, my brother, your friend, would still be alive. Where were you? Why didn't you come? Why are you so late? I can imagine Martha's frustration with Jesus That he did not do what she believed he ought to do. Jesus, you did not work this out the way I thought you should work this out. And she's looking back through that window of history. She sees her dead brother. And the big if only was, was that Jesus was not there. If Jesus was there, everything would be different for her now. 
Lazarus would still be alive. She is haunted by this idea. If only you would have been there. She then says in verse 22, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is a beautiful verse that really gives us a perspective of what it looks like for someone to wrestle with God. For a child of God, someone who knows God, loves God, to wrestle with him. It's very much like the Psalms, right? David has this sort of language constantly. Lord, where were you? (laughs) But I do believe. And in that space, there is great struggle and there's great growth and maturation that takes place, but it is a very difficult space to be in. So when, when Martha says, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you, she's not suggesting in some sort of subversive or subtle way that, hey, Jesus, why don't you bring him back to life? That ship has sailed. She has no hope that Lazarus is going to come back to life. And we know this for a fact because Later in the story, when Jesus goes to the tomb, she pleads with him not to do it. Do not open up the tomb. He's been dead four days. The stench of death would be insulting to us all. Don't do that. Right? She is not expecting Jesus to bring Lazarus back from the dead. What she is doing is contrasting her frustration. If only, where were you? Why don't you care? But God, I know, I know that you are from God. Jesus, I, I believe you. I know God listens to you. He answers your prayers. But then that even creates another layer of struggle for her, right? Because she, she believes, Jesus, I know you're from God. I know he answers you. He will do whatever you ask. But if that's the case, then why didn't you ask for Lazarus? I know the story of the Seraphonician woman's daughter who you saved from a distance, I know the story of the centurion's servant who you healed at a distance or the official's son whom you healed at a, dif- at a distance. I know you are able to do this. I know God answers your prayers. But now when I look back, I don't see you, nor do I see you praying. I believe in you, but this is, this is not easy. This is difficult. This makes life messy for Martha. She knows that God will give Jesus what? He asks, but he didn't ask for her brother's life. And that can be very upsetting. If only you would have prayed for him, he would still be alive today. You know, as we look back and rehearse the if-only scenarios of our lives, we so often can become confused and discouraged like Martha. To say that space, if only God, something different would have happened. And I know you have the power to make, to make this different. You could have intervened. You could have prayed. You could have sent a miracle. You could have done something. But where were you? Where were you? That space is one of great turmoil and distress. Martha acknowledges Jesus' power. Her faith is not gone, yet She just longs to understand, and she wrestles with these questions. You see, Martha's struggle to understand is painfully uh, distressing for her because her perspective is only looking through that window into the past and asking the question, if only. 
Her perspective is looking backwards, and this is what causes such grief and such pain and such confusion. However, what we are called to do is not only look to the past, but we are also to look forward to the future. And we are to grieve looking forward, not just looking backwards. We are to grieve understanding who Christ is and that he is calling us to himself and that we have a hope, an anchored hope, that we are in the hands of Christ. And for us to grieve rightly the things that have happened in the past, we are to grieve with hope as we look to Christ in the future. You know, the Apostle Paul was not just a great theologian that gave us theology. He was a pastor that planted many churches and deeply cared and loved for his people in those churches. He would write letters to them to encourage them with a pastor's heart. And he writes to the church in Thessalonica, and he wants to speak to this issue of how do you handle the situation when a loved one dies, knowing when you look back, there's all sorts of if-onlys that could have changed that reality. So he writes to them, and he wants to encourage them. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says this. He goes, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have passed away that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. I don't want you to be mistaken on this. Church, if you understand who Christ is, we won't grieve like the world grieves, like as if we don't have any hope. Well, we are to grieve with hope because of who Jesus is. Paul calls us to grieve in such a way not to be haunted by the if-onlys of our past, but we are to grieve holding on to the anchor of our hope, which is Christ. Paul wants us to grieve as those who not only look backwards, but look forward as well. So when we look forward, what is it that gives us hope? Well, he says it in the next verse. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Do you want to know the anchor of your hope? It is Jesus, the one who died, conquered death by resurrecting, and knowing that when he comes back, he is coming with those who have died in Christ alongside of him. As Christ was raised from the dead, so will those who have fallen asleep in Christ be raised from the dead. This is the hope that Paul gives to the church in Thessalonica, and this is our hope. That we don't just grieve looking to the past, but we grieve knowing that we are going toward the one who has conquered death and has given us life. And this is great, great encouragement in those spaces of distress, in those spaces of pain. To be able to hope in the resurrected Jesus. To not just look to the past, but also to look to the future. This is how we grieve. And this is how Jesus calls Martha grieve. In verse 23, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. Now to Martha, this might even sound a little bit like cheap platitudes, right? I know Jesus. I know. Martha understands the biblical truth of resurrection. (laughs) 
Martha knows that her brother will one day rise again. Martha is well aware of the Christian hope of resurrection. She knows all the echoing promises of the old covenant. She has read Isaiah 66 and Ezekiel 37. She knows the promises. She understands what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. I, I know. I know. But those promises seem very, very thin. Very fragile, very almost like whispered promises that just kind of rattle around in the old covenant. Martha responds to him in verse 24. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha knows that she has said goodbye to her brother for now, but someday, somehow, she'll see him again. He'll rise back. She knows that Christian hope is not just a spiritual place where our souls go disembodied forever. She knows that the hope of eternity is one of a weighty glory, one of flesh, one of resurrection. She anticipates that on that day, Lazarus will be there. She longs for the day, even, where all the tears will be wiped away and all of the pains gone, and we'll enter into eternal joy with God. She knows the promises, yet those promises are like thin whispers. They are these things that I I know to be true and I I believe in them, but there's nothing to hold on to. There's nothing tangible. My brother's body is in a tomb. That's real. But this idea of resurrection just seems almost ethereal. Jesus then responds with some of the most powerful hope-giving words in all the Bible. He looks at this woman who is grieving, who believes in the resurrection, knows that it's coming, but for some reason, it's not giving her a lot of hope. There's not a whole lot for her to hold on to. So he speaks the truth to her in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This proclamation of Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life, gives meaning and source to all of the promises of the old covenant of life with God. All of the prophecies, all of the types, all of the shadows, all of the stories, all of the verses that are alluding to and pointing toward some sort of future hope of resurrection that they didn't know where that hope was to be anchored, Jesus says right here, that's all me. I am the resurrection and the life. It is not just something that will happen to you. It is something that happens to me, and you are in me. (laughs) It is as if, when Jesus says this, he turns back to the Old Testament, and he proclaims, I am the resurrection and the life, and his voice goes throughout all of the dark corners of the Old Covenant and brings life and meaning and hope to all of those promises. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So every time we see a story in the Old Testament that has to do with resurrection, has to do with death and resurrection, all of those are infused with Christ because he is the resurrection and the life. And my friends, the Old Testament is packed full of these stories. This is a hope Martha is well aware of, but again, she didn't have a place to anchor hope too until Jesus says these words. These stories 
permeate the whole Bible from Genesis all the way through the prophets. In fact, the first death and resurrection story that points to Christ comes all the way back before the fall with Adam, with the creation of Eve. You see, Adam is made from the dust of the ground. God breathes life into him, brings him up, gives him a job, tells him to go and name the animals and so on. And then the Lord says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I'll make a helper for him. So what does the Lord do to Adam? Lays him to sleep. And this word for sleep is like a death sleep. As Adam is symbolically dead on the ground, the Lord opens up his side, takes out a rib, and forms for him a bride. Sews him back together, resurrects him, and he comes back to life and is presented with the bride from his own side. Now this is the same story of the gospel. Jesus is the second Adam. He goes into the grave. And out of his side comes water and blood, the two things that are used to form the church, his bride. He is resurrected and he is presented by the Father with a bride, a church, a new humanity. Even Genesis talks about death and resurrection. And when Jesus proclaims, I am the resurrection and the life, he infuses meaning into that story. But that's not the only story. In Genesis 6, we see a death and resurrection of the whole world, where the whole world is put into the death of of the flood under the waters. And then the waters part. They, they, They disperse. And what comes up is but a resurrected world, a new world for the glory of God, a new creation. In the same way, when Jesus dies and is resurrected, Paul says he is the firstborn of the new creation. It's a whole new creation that's going on in this death and resurrection story. Abraham, in the same way, is put into this death sleep. And when he awakes, after the fiery pot and the animals are cut in two, when he awakes, he enters into a new covenant with God. In the same way that each week when we take communion, we say, this is the new covenant of my blood. Jesus' death, it was, he, he died, and then he was resurrected and brought with him a new covenant. Joseph, he had two deaths and resurrections. The first comes when his brothers throw him into a pit, and then he is resurrected to a place of power in Egypt. And then things go sideways with Potiphar's wife, so Potiphar kills him again and throws him into the death of a prison only to be resurrected by Pharaoh to even more glory, to have kingship, to have authority over all the earth. Israel themselves went through a death and resurrection as they were dead in Egypt and were resurrected through the waters of the Red Sea, ultimately to come into new life in the promised land, a land of blessing. Daniel was thrown into a symbolic death of the lion's den with a stone put over the entrance And it was sealed, and he spent the whole night there. And then the next morning, the stone is rolled away. And there's a proclamation of Daniel saying, hey, I'm here. The Lord has closed mouths with the lions. I'm still alive. And then the king, hearing this, sends out a decree to the ends of the earth so all tongues and nations would hear that Yahweh is God. Same way when Jesus is raised from the dead. The good news of the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. Similarly with Jonah, he spends three nights in the death of the belly of a fish, only to be resurrected. And out of the mouth of this resurrected prophet comes a good news message that brings salvation to the foreign nations. 
All of these stories, and there's so many more, all of them find life, they find flesh and bone, they find weighty glory by Jesus' words saying, I am the resurrection and the life. All of those stories are pointing toward the great hope of Christ. But not only that, Elijah and Elisha both had resurrected ministries as they bring back to life these young children who had died. Elisha, actually, he has a fascinating death and resurrection story because he continues to raise people from the dead even after he dies. <laughs> you remember there's this strange story in the Old Testament where you have this group of friends that are carrying their friend who had died to bury him, and they start digging a grave in a cemetery, and they see these robbers coming that they're afraid they're going to mug them. So they take the body of their friend and throw it into the hole. But they didn't realize that they dug a hole on top of Elisha's grave. And when this dead body of their friend touches the bones of Elisha, he resurrects. He comes back to life just by touching the bones of the dead prophet Elisha, which is really fascinating because here we see Elisha as a type of Christ, that in the same way, if we are buried with Christ, we will also have resurrection. These stories are packed full of hope that only makes sense when we see Christ as the resurrection and the life. Isaiah 26, 19 proclaims, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in dust, awake and sing for joy. Ezekiel 37, 13, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from, the gra- from your graves, O my people. This is the great hope of the old covenant. There will be some sort of resurrection. We don't know how. But it's going to happen. And Mary or Martha had this hope. I know Lazarus will be raised from the dead on that last day. But that hope seems so distant, and I don't know what to make of it. And then Jesus stands in front of her and says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who will breathe life back into your brother's bones. I am the one who will raise him to glory. On that last day, yes, but unbeknownst to Martha, a little bit sooner as well. You see, our God, church, is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. For all who are brought into the life of Christ will live. From Adam to Noah, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to all the prophets, all those who belong to Christ will share in the resurrection of Christ. All of history echoes this truth. All of creation will participate in this truth. For Christ is the resurrection. When we look forward, rather than looking back, we see Christ as the sure and steadfast hope for our souls. The sure and steadfast hope of resurrection. We will no longer be haunted by the if Onlys of our past, but rather we will hope in the one who has conquered the grave and has conquered death. We will not be tormented by the if onlys if we can set our hope on the I am of the resurrection. That is where our hope is found. Jesus continues in verse 26. He says, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Everyone, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no longer how long uh, you have walked away from God, 
No matter who you are, if you believe and you live in Christ, you will never die. For all those who are in Christ are brought into the very life of Christ, a resurrected life. And Christ is the one who has defeated death. And then he asks a very important question to Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And this is a question we need to ask ourselves. And I want to ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that Jesus is the one who can transform all of those if-onlys by his proclamation that he is the resurrection and the life to be now an anchor to the hope that we have ahead of us? The if-onlys we leave behind and we move forward in Christ, in hope, in boldness. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus has the voice of life that awakens the dead? That he is the sweet aroma that takes away the stench of death and the stench of the if-onlys that torment our minds? Do you believe that he is the source of all joy that can transform the pain and the sorrows of our past to singing and dancing before the king? Do you believe that he is the hope that takes hold of us in the midst of sorrow and pain and grief? Church, the Christian life is not one absent of grief. We, we grieve. There's sorrow. There's pain. But we don't grieve as the world grieves, as those who have no hope. We grieve in such a way as to hold on to Christ who is our hope. He is our comforter. He is our rest. He is our peace. He is the one who allows us to lay our heads and rest in the valley of the shadow of death. And may we, if you, if you believe this, may we respond as Martha responds. In verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I believe you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one, you are the king, you are the one who is going to bring all of the promises into yourself, and you bring us into yourself, and there we have life and hope, for you are the son of God. Church, if we believe this truth, we must also live in this truth. Remember what he says in verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes, who lives and believes, who lives and and believes in me shall never die. We must live and believe in this truth, that he is the resurrection and the life. If we believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he truly is the king of life, let us faithfully live our lives under his rule and reign, being proclaimers of this life-giving truth. If we live and believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then we ought not be paralyzed by the if-onlys of our past. As painful as they are, he is the life and the resurrection. We are to believe and live in the truth that he is our hope, that he is our life. Let us be about our business with this hope. Let us grieve with this hope. Let us rejoice with this hope. Let us work. Let us talk. Let us commune. Let us gather together with this hope that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And it is in him that we live, we move, and we find our being. It is in him that we have hope. Let's pray.
God, we thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us in Christ, Lord, that we have been buried with him in baptism and we have been raised to new life in his name. Lord, we thank you that even if we die, we die with Christ and we will be brought back to life. God, let this hope just grip our hearts, Lord. Let it grip our minds. Lord, let us live in this hope, press forward in this hope. Lord, let us leave behind the if-onlys that torment our souls and live in the freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom of Jesus, the resurrection, and the life. We pray all of this in the glorious name of our Savior. Amen. Church, just as we do not grieve only looking backward but forward, so when we feast, we feast looking forward, remembering that our feasting today cannot even begin to compare with our feasting in the resurrection, which is more real than we are even now, more vivid, more gratifying, and more beautiful. And to that hope we now turn. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. Father, we thank you for the life of your son, who like bread was torn, that we might eat and be satisfied and be mended. Amen. After giving thanks, he took the bread, Christ broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, take and eat, do this in remembrance of me. Christ broken for you. Take and eat and celebrate all that he has done. After the bread, Jesus took the wine and gave thanks. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the victor. You wear the victor's crown. It was a crown of thorns. Lord, you shed your blood and the water came forth from your side. 
with which you sanctify and purify and consecrate your church, your bride. We exalt you, Lord, the resurrected one, this morning. Amen. He poured out the wine, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink, doing this in remembrance of me. In Jesus, the name above every other name. It's Jesus, the only one you can end and say, yeah. And worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Oh, we live for you. And holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and be me in your love to those around me. And I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I will put my trust in you alone. And I will not be shaken. Church, this is the blood of Christ poured out for us. Take and drink and celebrate all that he has done. We continue now in a spirit of worship as we bring our offerings. Church, please pray with me. Father, as we give these offerings to you, make us be mindful that you are the great provider. Father, out from the dust, you have created us. You have breathed into us the breath of life. You have given life to all things. You open your hands and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. And Lord, we are greatly blessed to be your people. Father, we pray that with these gifts, you would multiply the efforts and the reach of this ministry. Father, that like light going into darkness, the neighborhoods and the people surrounding this place, this house in which we gather, uh, that the light would penetrate that darkness, that you would be made known among the nations, even to the ends of the earth, we pray. Father, we thank you that we worship a God who already has the victory won. Lord, cheer our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing these last couple songs with me this morning. When I think about this man who was God in the flesh and had the authority to call to a man and tell him to live again, I'm struck by the authority and power there, but also just the worthiness and um, the worthiness of 
our whole life. This last song uh, is a song by David Brimmer, um, and it's one we haven't done here, but it's real simple. It's, uh, you're worthy of it all, you are worthy of it all, for from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. You are worthy. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. Death cannot hold you, the veil turn before you, you silence the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are over the praise of your glory, for you are raised to life again. And you have no rival, you have no equal, now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is, what a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ my King. What a powerful name it is, nothing can stand against, what a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. Church, as you go, go with this benediction from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are sent.